So we are in the book of Galatians. Last time we finished up chapter 3, which leads us inexorably to chapter 4, but I'm going to actually back up to the end of chapter 3 and sort of get a run at 4, since the thought is the same. And what Paul has been talking about up until now is the idea that the circumcision party, who are also messianic believers, has come from Jerusalem and has come after he has planted a church and basically said, uh, yeah, we know what this guy Paul told you, but we're from the home office and this is the real story. And what they're trying to do is get them to become circumcised and, in parentheses, follow the Torah. He then went through a riff explaining that Abraham's covenant was based entirely on faith and not on any kind of works. He then says that the Torah, which was given several hundred years later, doesn't abrogate or change the original promise. The idea that an ex post facto law would void the promise and put conditions on it is something that Paul is rejecting. So that takes us to 3.23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Messiah Yeshua, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Messiah have put on Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Messiah Yeshua, and if you are Messiahs, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what he said is, you folks in Galatia came to faith just exactly the same way Abraham did, and your coming to faith is every bit as valid as his coming to faith. Furthermore, since you have come to faith in God in the same way that Abraham did, you have become, in a sense, heirs to Abraham's promise. Now, one of the things that Jews do, and not throwing rocks at them, but they're basically saying, yeah, yeah, all these promises are to us, and you Gentiles certainly welcome to come and do fellowship, and you certainly have a place in the world to come, but you're not us. And there is some merit in that. Sort of get a run at it. If you read Revelation at the end, what you discover is in the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, you still have the nations which surround the new Jerusalem. So the nations are in the new heaven and the new earth, and as I would say, in the Baptist sense, they're saved. They've made it past the lake of fire, and they're in the new heaven and the new earth, but they are not Hebrews. They're still the nations. And the analogy I use is just as the Levites are a special part of Hebrews who have special responsibilities and special privileges, so too the Hebrews in the new heaven and the new earth will be, I think, in an analogous position to the rest of the 12 tribes are to the Levites. The uniqueness of the Hebrews doesn't go away by allowing Gentiles to become fellow heirs. And the question becomes, heirs to what? Land. 
So the thing that the Gentiles are going to inherit is land, and they are going to inherit land in the new heaven and the new earth, which is not going to make them Hebrews. You know, separating this idea of being a member of the 12 tribes from being saved in the Baptist sense, I think all this then makes sense. The Gentiles are Gentiles and continue to be Gentiles, and they're just fine as Gentiles, and they're not going to hell, and everything's fine, but they don't become Jews or Hebrews simply by having faith. But they are heirs, just like Abraham is, and they're heirs to land in the new heaven and the new earth. And oh, by the way, they are heirs in the same way that Abraham has an inheritance. In other words, Abraham's inheritance of the new heaven and the new earth, as is theirs. So the idea then is you came to faith just like Abraham came to faith. His place in the new heaven and the new earth is based on his acceptance of the covenant by faith. You got the same inheritance in the same way. So now, on to chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Okay, he's going to take a right turn here, and it's important that we understand where he's going. So the first part is he's talking about heirs, and the concept of heirship is you have intrinsic value based on who your daddy is. The heir as a child has intrinsic value, even though in all practical cases he's useless. You know, you start with little kids, and they're pretty useless. In fact, they're sort of like entropy. They cause more damage than they, than they create. But their value is based on the fact that they're heirs, not based on anything they do. And so as they grow up, that value is intrinsic to them, even though they may sin, they may mess up, they may do all sorts of weird stuff. And you know, you have the, the parable of the two lost sons, where one of them takes half of his inheritance, goes off and blows it, but he still remains the heir, even though he is very badly behaved. And so what Paul is saying here is, you are heirs. And even though you may be badly behaved and so forth, you are still heirs and you are still valuable to God by virtue of the fact that you are heirs with Abraham. Now, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, he is going to go into a riff about paganism. And one of the things that lots of Christian commentators on the book of Galatians mistake is this next riff is talking about Judaism. It is not talking about Judaism. It is talking about the paganism that they have come out of because he's talking to Gentiles. And I have had long discussions with very devout, very biblically literate Christians who are saying, no, 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 no. All that Jewish stuff is what Paul is talking about here, and you don't want to do any of that Jewish stuff because that's all been done away with. That's not the argument he's making. So, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary princes of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. And we've just gone over the, the idea of being an heir. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So what we're talking about here is pagan gods. We are not talking about the Torah. We are not talking about anything having to do with Judaism here. So before you knew God, you were enslaved to things that were not God. And if you go back up to verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And what I'm suggesting to you is he's using the same language in both cases. So what he's talking about here is pagan religion, pagan gods, pagan priesthood, all of the pagan stuff that they have come out of. Pick it up at 8 again. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So he is talking about paganism here. He is not talking about whatever strain of Judaism or oral Torah or any of that kind of stuff. He's talking about paganism. And pagans are not stupid. If a pagan religion was so bad as to be unsuccessful, nobody would follow it. So even pagan religion has a certain amount of wisdom to it. Otherwise, pagan societies wouldn't flourish as they did. Verse 9 again. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Now, if you are a Calvinist, you can typically camp out here a little bit. And you can talk about predestination and tulip principle. God makes you an offer you can't refuse. That kind of thing. I don't think that's what's being said here. What I think is being said here is, you have come to know God, and God now recognizes you as one of his children. It's known as in the sense of an adoptive parent now recognizes this child. I know you. You are now mine. You are now a part of my family. I don't think it has anything to do with predestination. Mainly because I don't believe in predestination. But if you are a Calvinist, knock yourself out. One of the things Yeshua says is in the end there are going to be people who are going to say, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name and all that kind of stuff. And he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And so what I am suggesting is in the same spirit as here in Galatians, when God knows you, the Hebrew word is yada, know, and it is used of relations between a man and a woman. It suggests an intimate relationship with you. So if you are adopted into God's family, he knows you. And if you haven't been adopted into God's family, he doesn't know you. So back to verse 9. Actually, let's pick it up in verse 8. I'm going to get the whole paragraph out this time. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have 
come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. And again, you will find many Christians that will take verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years as referring to the Jewish feasts. That is not what's being said there. Because pagans also have days and months and seasons and years. They have just as many, if not more, holidays as anybody else here. The feasts of God are commanded by God. They are not of the elementary principles of the world. Verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know what was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Messiah Yeshua. Back up in verse 12. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. What I think is being said there, because he follows it with the time that he spent with them sick, and they took care of it. So for a time, he became as one of them. He lived with them, he partook of their food, he partook of their hospitality, and in all ways, he became as one of them. And so what he's saying is, I want you now to become like I am, just as I became like you were for a while. For a time, they cared for him. The reason he fetched up there for as long is he he had some kind of an ailment. So now to verse 15. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? What apparently is happening here is these people who are coming up from Jerusalem, who are Messianic Jews, are telling them that Paul didn't give them the whole story. There's more to this salvation and religion stuff than what Paul taught you. And they're sort of saying it in a way that makes Paul seem like kind of a bad guy or a charlatan. In other words, if he he was really a good preacher, he'd have told you all this other stuff. wonder why he didn't. You know, that kind of a thing. What they've done is they have cast aspersions on Paul's motives. And Paul says, when I was with you guys and you received the Holy Spirit, You were so joyful that if you could have done it, you'd have popped an eyeball out and given it to me. Have I now become your enemy? And have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Is the truth making me your enemy? Verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. What they're doing is they are flattering the Galatians, and they are doing it for nefarious reasons. It's like a used car salesman that compliments your shirt, compliments your necktie, compliments everything about you, and he's making a big fuss over you, but the reason he's doing that is so he can sell you a car. Verse 17 again. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. So the idea is they are flattering you to bring you into their orbit, so then you will turn around and treat them as something special. 
pastors, priests, something like that. In other words, they'll be able to come into your presence and receive special treatment from you is the reason for what they're doing. They're trying to establish a clergy-laity kind of relationship with them. And the other part about this, of course, is people are a source of power. If you can draw a crowd, you can get that crowd to do stuff. So getting into control of a group of people is, is something that lots of people desire to do. Verse 18, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. In other words, if somebody compliments you and he does it sincerely for a good purpose, that's a great thing. And not only when I am present with you, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Messiah is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So this, this whole letter has been very starchy. What Paul is saying is, sort of the old cliche, this hurts me more than it hurts you. 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. And of course, we're talking about Isaac and Ishmael. And Isaac was the son of promise. Ishmael was the son of the flesh. They had a promise of an heir, and it wasn't happening. So Sarah cooked up this bright idea, gee, if I can't have any children, take Hagar, and we'll see if we can get some children that way. So that's how Ishmael was born. And what Paul is saying, of course, is one is a child of promise, the other is a child of the flesh. Let's pick it up at 22 again. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is your mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. All right. This is where we sort of got hung up a couple weeks ago. First off, Hagar and Sarah are an allegory here. He is making an allegory. He is not talking about literal Hagar and literal Sarah. And he's saying that Hagar, who brought forth a child from slavery to slavery, is like the Torah given at Mount Sinai. And the Torah given at Mount Sinai, which is all... Jerusalem recognizes is something that leads to slavery. As opposed to the child of Sarah, who is Isaac, who is the child of promise, and that child is born as an heir. Remember in the story it says Ishmael will not inherit with Isaac. So Isaac is the heir, not Ishmael, and Isaac corresponds to Jerusalem in heaven, the new Jerusalem. 
So we're talking here New Covenant and Covenant at Sinai. And what he's saying is, is the Torah that Jerusalem on earth follows leads to slavery, whereas the covenant that is in the Jerusalem in heaven leads to freedom. And by the way, you will hear Messianics teach this as oral Torah and written Torah. That is not correct. In the Isaiah passage that we just read in verse 27, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. That's from Isaiah 54. And if you read Isaiah 54 in context, and I will take you there for a minute, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tents, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. That's New Covenant talk. So what Paul is saying here is, back in Galatians, is Hagar represents the covenant at Sinai, which is written on stone, tablets of stone. Isaac represents the new covenant, which is the same words written where it's supposed to be written on the human heart. And what he's also saying is the new covenant is a new Jerusalem, new heaven and new earth thing. The reason I think he's quoting Isaiah 54 in Galatians is to tell them that this promise is yet to come. What God wants to do is write his Torah on your heart so that the Torah wells up from inside of you instead of being imposed from outside. The Torah written on stone is imposed from outside of you. The Torah written on your heart wells up from inside of you and comes out. And then once your heart's circumcised, the Torah is inside, so that Torah now wells up out of your heart. Rivers of living water flow from your belly. That's the Torah written inside coming out of you, as opposed to the Torah written on slabs of stone which is imposed on you. But in no case are the words of the Torah being disparaged here. So 428. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. And by the way, you remember Ishmael was cast out of the camp because he was mocking Isaac. So Ishmael was in fact persecuting, quote unquote, I don't know that it went beyond big brother mocking his little brother, but it was severe enough that Sarah said, get that kid out of my camp because he's not going to be the heir. So what he's saying is, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now. Verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. And that's quoting Sarah when she tells Abraham, get that kid out of here and his mother too. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Please consider becoming a sponsor. You can sponsor us for as little as a dollar a month. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose 
for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.